I think the document leaks have had a tremendous effect on the public's understanding of the war in Ukraine. They clearly seem to have agitated Ukrainian President Zelensky. For months, Shane Harris, the Washington Post national security reporter, has been reporting on intelligence leaks that have really rattled some world leaders. These are the Discord leaks. We know about them because, according to the federal government, a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman named Jack Teixeira had been leaking highly classified intelligence documents to a private online chat room to an audience of mostly teenagers. I've just never seen someone sharing documents with a small group of people basically as a flex, you know, as a way to try and kind of like develop some street cred with them or something. These leaks that were intended for a small, private chat room have drawn international attention, in large part because of what they say about U.S. intel around the globe, especially the war in Ukraine. We're getting this fascinating look behind the curtain at how the United States thinks the war is going for the Ukrainians and the Russians. We are taken into private Ukrainian communications. We know what President Zelensky is telling his aides. We hear things about what the Russian Ministry of Defense is saying. So it really is kind of this tour of the world through the lens of the intelligence agencies. One thing that really stunned me recently was this document kind of buried in the trove, which says that Evgeny Prigozhin, who is the head of this notorious mercenary force called the Wagner Group, offered in a secret communication with the Ukrainian intelligence service to give them information about the location of Russian troops if, in exchange, Ukraine would pull back its armed forces from the city of Bakhmut, where he was losing fighters by the thousands in a battle for that city. When I saw this document, I thought, if this was a genuine offer, it looks like the head of a Russian mercenary group is possibly committing treason by selling out Russian military forces to save his own. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Anahat O'Connor. It's Tuesday, May 16th. Today, we talk with Shane about the latest leaked intelligence documents. And later in the show, we'll discuss the disturbing new details that Shane uncovered about the young man accused of these leaks. So Shane, I'm curious how this works. These documents were dumped months ago, and yet it seems like every week you're reporting startling new revelations. How does that work? Can you describe the reporting process? Well, you're right that there was sort of, there was sort of an initial dump of about 50 or so documents that appeared initially actually on social media including Telegram. They came out of this Discord server where Jack Teixeira was the administrator, and somebody in that group, it appears, posted those outside of this kind of closed circle, and that's how they got onto the wider internet. Separately, the Post has obtained hundreds of documents that were also shared in that server, and that's really become the basis for our exclusive reporting on what these um, documents say, is this, uh, this separate group that has not been widely distributed. And so you and your colleagues discovered something really extraordinary in these documents last week. This was about the Wagner Group's activities in Ukraine. Okay, so bring us up to speed. Who is this group and who is its leader? The Wagner Group in U.S. government parlance is a private military contractor. What that means in plain English is they're mercenaries. This is a private army, essentially, that has been hired by Russia 
to fight in Ukraine. It augments Russian military forces and is arguably indispensable to the Kremlin's war effort in Ukraine. It is headed by a man named Evgeny Prigozhin, who is an ally of Vladimir Putin. Uh, he is sometimes called Putin's chef because he owns catering companies that provide food service to the Kremlin. But Prigozhin is his own man and has lately not been afraid to voice dissatisfaction and criticism with the way the Russian military, which ultimately means the Kremlin, is running the war. Russia's top mercenary is turning on Moscow again with a vengeance. Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin screaming at President Putin's defense minister and army chief of staff. So he is a pretty outsized figure, and the Wagner Group is a notorious organization, but it is taking heavy losses right now in Ukraine, particularly in the battle for Bakhmut in the east of Ukraine, and Evgeny Prigozhin has been very displeased with what he thinks is the lackluster support that he's been getting from the Russian military as he persecutes this campaign. Okay, so based on this leaked intelligence, what exactly did Prigozhin do? So according to this uh, document, in a communication that Prigozhin had with the Ukrainian intelligence service, he said that if the Ukrainian armed forces would withdraw their personnel from around Bakhmut, he would provide Ukraine with information on Russian troop positions. And he does appear to have that kind of information. So the idea here was that you pull back your forces, I'll give you information on where the Russians are so you, Ukraine, can go attack them. What's notable about the offer to exchange information in tr for a withdrawal is if, if that is a legitimate offer Prigozhin made, I think the Kremlin would view that not as a kind of normal communication with their adversary. They might view that as treasonous. Hmm. Okay, so why would he want to do that? I mean, he is in a pretty desperate situation now where his Wagner group fighters have been dying by the thousands in Bakhmut, which has been a terrible battle on all sides. The Ukrainians, the Russians, to include the Wagner group fighters, have all taken tremendous casualties. And this battle has kind of played out on this block-by-block -block basis in Bakhmut, um, which has become a place of real, I think, symbolic importance for both sides. We should also say, too, that there are those in Ukraine and in the United States, too, that were suspicious of this offer, which he made more than once, and did allow that he could be disingenuous, this could be some kind of a head fake. Um, but the fact that he extended it more than once and, and appears to have gone to some lengths to try to conceal the contacts that he's had with Ukrainian intelligence, I thought was, was very notable. Mm. Now, if this offer were actually genuine, what would it say about the state of Putin's war that such a crucial ally of his is apparently willing to turn on him? I think if the offer is genuine, it tells you that Evgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner Group forces, who are crucial to the fight in Ukraine for Russia, are feeling at the end of their rope. You know, the casualties are extraordinary on the Russian side, and we presume that they are on the Ukrainian side as well, though we tend to see more numbers on the, on the Russian side. If he's willing to stick his neck out, Prigozhin, and risk, you know, the ire of the Kremlin, or worse, if he's seen as somehow selling out Russian forces, I think that tells you that he perhaps feels he doesn't have any great options left. 
Now, these latest revelations that you reported on, can you describe you know, their impact on geopolitics, on the war in Ukraine, and, and sort of what the world is learning? Well, so far, the Kremlin and uh, Mr. Prigozhin have both come out and essentially tried to dismiss the reporting. I think, you know, they use the word fake as to describe it. Now, to be clear, the reports are based on U.S. intelligence documents. So we're reporting what the U.S. government itself was reporting, what it was collecting, what it was saying in documents that were sent out to all kinds of different officials. Notably, when we contacted Mr. Prigozhin on Sunday to ask him about both his contacts with the Ukrainian intelligence service, and specifically this claim that he offered to swap Russian troop information for a pullback in Bakhmut, he acknowledged, or at least seemed to acknowledge, that he was talking to Ukrainian officials, but he didn't directly address that central issue of whether or not there was this offer put on the table to Ukraine. And and that was notable to me because if Vladimir Putin was unaware of that or the Russian Ministry of Defense was unaware that he was doing this, uh, this potentially could be very dangerous for Mr. Prigozhin if he were seen as somehow, you know, betraying the Kremlin or trying to kind of cut a deal to save his own forces. And I think that this reporting really kind of demonstrates, you know, you might say the desperation that Prigozhin is facing right now if he's actually willing to try and cut some kind of deal with Ukraine in order to save his forces in Bakhmut. What did these leaks tell you about other strategies in this war, like Ukraine's plans to attack Russia? Well, the latest is we've seen uh, reporting that President Zelensky, uh, Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine, has privately talked about wanting to launch strikes inside of Russia, which was a really notable uh, thing to learn since the United States has been very worried about not launching strikes inside of Russia and not giving Ukraine the weapons that it could use to do that and potentially escalate the war. And President Zelensky has said publicly look, give me longer-range weapons so I can hit Russian troop positions deeper in Ukraine. I will not use them to launch strikes inside Russia. But what these leaked intelligence documents show is that privately, he does want to strike inside Russia, and he has contemplated much more aggressive attacks inside Russia. And so I think what this does is gives you a window into another reason why the Biden administration is reluctant to provide these longer-range weapons. It's because they seem to understand, or at least maybe have some kind of fear or concern, that if they did that, maybe Ukraine actually would use them to launch strikes inside Russia, or that the temptation or the risk would be significant. Do we know how Zelensky and Putin and other leaders are reacting to these leaks? Well, so far, we asked you know, President Zelensky about this in an interview my colleagues did in Kyiv earlier Thank this you. month. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you for making time for us. He was clearly upset that all this information was coming out. He felt that it was actually helping Russia to make these things public, even though I think in many ways the documents actually show what a weak position Russia has been in and make the case for supporting Ukraine, arguably. But, you know, any time secrets like this, secret communications, negotiations are laid bare, it can be at the very least embarrassing and uncomfortable for government officials around the world uh, and can sometimes really kind of upset the course of geopolitics. So when you have... President Zelensky coming out and essentially criticizing 
the White House for not telling him that this information had been leaked, that's a pretty, you know, powerful point of tension between him and Washington. But I don't think that these leaks, they're not going to break U.S. resolve for Ukraine. They are not also telling U.S. officials and Ukrainian officials things that they don't necessarily already know about how the war is going. What they do show, which is very notable, is that U.S. officials have a much dimmer view about the prospects for Ukraine in the war going forward. Mm, Okay. Now, I'm curious, based on your reporting, you know, if we take a step back and sort of look at the bigger picture here, what does this ongoing saga tell you about the real-world impact of these kinds of intelligence leaks? Well, what's so interesting is you read these intelligence documents, it helps to keep in mind When this information becomes public, a couple of things happen. You know, one is that we all then get to see what those officials are reading in private. And sometimes it's a more detailed or more in-depth view of things that you're already hearing even in, in press reports. And sometimes it's new and it's stark and it's a total revelation. It's something that we have not known at all was going on. When that information becomes public, then it also puts the administration in a difficult spot, to be fair to their position, because now all of the secrets and the things that they know that they're trying to keep private have now been made public. And the administration does have, as any administration would, concerns that when you're reporting on classified intelligence, that it could jeopardize sensitive sources and methods that are used to collect that information. So one thing that we do as reporters, which we do in any event, whether it's a leaked document that we obtain or information we get from a source, is we always go to the government and be as explicit as we can in what we're reporting so that we can understand, are there any concerns of a really significant danger? You know, would you jeopardize an operation by reporting this? Could you risk someone's life? And so there's been a kind of ongoing discussion about that as well. But, you know, these things have a way of throwing light into dark places, these leaks, which is not something that governments always like. I don't think it's changing the course of the war, per se. I think we just have a better understanding of how the war is being fought and clearly what the stakes are now. After the break, more about the man accused of these leaks, Jack Teixeira. We'll talk with Shane about the details he's just learned about Teixeira's life. We'll be right back. Now, Shane, we probably wouldn't be having this discussion about, you know, the strategies that Ukraine is following or these internal deliberations if it weren't for this young man in Massachusetts named Jack Teixeira, um, who stands accused of sharing these documents and who who appears to be responsible for these leaks. You've been digging into uh, his story. What can you tell us about him and who he is? Jack Teixeira is a 21-year-old member of the Air National Guard in Massachusetts. Uh, His job at Otis Air Force Base was basically a network support technician. You know, somebody who works on computer networks, keeps them running, maintaining them. But he also worked in a sensitive facility that does intelligence support for the military. And so as part of his job, he had 
top secret and higher security clearances, which gave him access to classified information on military computer networks. And in particular, one network that actually is the Pentagon's main top secret network. That's where it appears all of these classified documents were stored. And to be clear, Jack Teixeira has a level of access that potentially thousands of people have. And so the allegations against him are that he took this information and copied it and photographed it and shared it with other people who don't have security clearances in this Discord chat space, which is a felony. The group that he shared this with came together in this Discord server, which is kind of like a virtual chat space, because of a mutual love that they had uh, for guns and guns and ammunition and weapons gear. Um, It also appears that they were reunited in some, you know, pretty repugnant views, uh, racist views, anti-Semitic views. As we dug more into Jack Teixeira's background, we found that he was collecting guns, some friends said, at least in part because he foresaw some kind of race war, as one put it, um, where white people and conservatives, as he viewed himself, would come into violent conflict with black people, with Jewish people. Um, He looked at the Black Lives Matter protests from the summer of 2020 as a harbinger of something that was coming, like a a violent struggle or a clash that was going to occur, one friend told us. Um, We viewed a number of different videos from him at a shooting range or inside the chat room itself where he is using racial slurs, where racist jokes flow very freely, where racist memes uh, and anti-Semitic memes are being shared. So the picture that emerges, I think, is of Teixeira as someone who is kind of steeping in this online world with this, you know, mix of racism and political paranoia and love of guns. And and really, interestingly, for somebody in the military, a very kind of paranoid, almost conspiratorial and adversarial view about the U.S. government. And the one place that he seems to have really latched onto is a belief that the government was trying to control people through restriction of firearms. And so, as one friend told us, and there was other reporting that we found to, to support this, um, he would joke, Deshera would joke, about wanting to kill ATF agents. These are agents mm. for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, which is the, you know, the premier gun control agency in the federal government. He would joke about killing ATF agents, blowing up ATF buildings. And, you know, that's pretty alarming, I think. And as a friend, his friend said, well, you know, you have to understand, and in the culture that we were in, people joked all the time about killing ATF agents, which, I mean, I found that pretty shocking, (laughs) (laughs) but apparently members of this server did not. But I think it gives you a sense for kind of the toxic stew that he was, you know, steeping in. And I think it raises really significant questions about how someone who had those views and who had espoused those views online to others was able to get a security clearance. And it seems like, uh, you know, this sort of language that he was using wasn't just confined to this online world that he was in this chat group, but that some of this had 
come to light. Yeah, I think that's right. He did have a history of this. He, he was suspended from school because he had threatened, you know, to, to, to bring a gun to school or, or, th- or talked about bringing weapons or explosives to school. We interviewed a close friend of Tashira's who said that he had confided that he had fantasized in high school about shooting up his high school and conducting a mass shooting. Um, other friends said that they had heard him make these kind of violent remarks. They didn't really take it seriously. But there was a history of this, and importantly, there was a documented history of it insofar as the local police understood that he had had this incident at school. So it's not entirely clear to us why or if the the, the, the security clearance reviewers who were basically adjudicating his application um, understood this. What has the government charged him with, and has Teixeira said anything about this uh, publicly or through his lawyers? Teixeira is charged with a violation of the Espionage Act, which speaks to uh, the unauthorized retention and transmission of classified information. So in other words, he, he, he took information and he shared it with others in a way that violated the law and did violate uh, his security clearance and the agreements that he made to protect classified information. So it's a fairly garden variety charge that is used in alleged leak cases like this. We've seen this applied to other people, including people who were in the military who shared classified information with unauthorized parties. Um, he has not said anything. He hasn't entered a plea yet. Um, a trial has not been set. There have been a number of different hearings scheduled for uh, kind of you know the, going through the pre-trial motions that keep getting postponed. Um, his lawyers did petition the government to let him out on bail while he goes through this process. The government has strongly objected to that. The judge hasn't ruled on it in this case. Um, so for now, he really hasn't said anything. Um, there have been some of his friends and supporters who've come out uh, in support of him, but he hasn't had a chance himself to enter a plea on the charges that he faces. So how did you connect with these friends of Teixeira's? What was that like, and what did they tell you? So when we were able to connect with them and go meet with them face-to-face, um, they were able to tell us a lot about the kind of person he was, what his role was in the server, why he shared these classified documents, when and how he shared the classified documents. Um, and that was very powerful and very revelatory for the reporting. You know, we, we met with one friend who wanted us to obscure their face and also their voice because they did not want to be associated publicly with Teixeira at this point, given everything that has been coming out about him and the criminal charges that he faces. He did call himself racist multiple times. I would say he's racist to an extent, yeah. Was he proud of being a racist? I would say he was proud of it. He screamed a lot of the N-word pretty often, a lot of slurs pretty often. Uh, and that was very illuminating to hear that from someone who knew Tashira and had spent a lot of time, many, many hours talking with him and getting to know him. You know, we also met with a, a second friend of his and did an in-person interview. And this person also wanted uh, to have their face obscure, but they actually asked us to use their their real voice in this case. The server really became very close during the pandemic when we were all locked down together. And every single day we would watch movies, play games, do activities together. We'd stream our our houses and mess around and dance and have fun. Um, When members would have issues like mental health crises, OG and other members would help them out. Um, There was stuff like, like, you know, family issues, like religion issues that he would always help us out on. And he was always very charismatic and and had a, a good willpower to get us through these situations. And he really helped all of us. 
And this is somebody who also very much looked up to Jack Teixeira. I mean, saw him as somebody who was very powerful, uh, who thought that his military credentials spoke very highly of him, and was able to tell us a lot about how Teixeira shared this classified information, where he understood that Teixeira obtained it, and why he did it. Now, Shane, stepping back and sort of looking at the bigger picture in all of this, um, I'm curious, you know, as journalists, our role is certainly to expose and reveal truths. And these leaks that you've been reporting on are incredibly eye-opening. But at the same time, we know that they were illegally leaked by a third party with ulterior motives. And, I mean, they could have, you know, really broad consequences, potentially even (laughs) altering the course of the war in Ukraine. What are the ethics around the journalism in this? How do you approach that information, its impact, and how do you make sense of what's in these leaks as an important news story? Well, I think that the approach that we use with these Discord leaks is the same that we use as journalists anytime that we encounter or obtain classified information, whether it be from a source or from a document or, you know, any kind of a leak, really, Um, which is that we look at it and we ask the first question, is this in the public interest? Does the public have a need or a right to know this information? Is it illuminating about events? Will it help the public understanding of the way government works? Um, and, And if the answer to that is yes... Broadly speaking, we sort of move to the next phase, which is, okay, how do we responsibly report on that information? How do we report it in a way that doesn't unnecessarily, you know, reveal a source that the government may have, you know, if that's not a newsworthy fact? Um, how do we report it in a way that people it can contextually understand it? So you're not just necessarily throwing a document on the internet and saying, have at it, you decide what it means, but trying to say, okay, this document exists alongside other facts that paint a fuller picture. Um, So, you know, and this is something something that's really important. And, you know, what we have not done with these documents is just to take them and put them on the internet. We're very carefully reporting each one of these and using the information sometimes on its own to say what the document says, but oftentimes in concert with other documents or other information from our own reporting to kind of augment it, um, to tell fuller stories. So I think that this is, you know, it's a large amount of information But we're really not approaching it any differently than we do in the course of doing our jobs every day when we're talking to people, when we're reading reports, uh, some that are not classified. Um, We're just being very judicious about it and applying the same journalistic standards and ethics that we would in any case. Well, Shane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Shane Harris is a national security reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon and Gable Connor. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. Thanks to Isabel Kershudian. If you love the show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It was great hanging out with you guys. I'm Anahad O'Connor. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.